0: Hello, and welcome to the Latter-day Saint Women podcast, where we share the legacy of women of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You'll get to know the faithful women who shaped our past and hear from inspiring women of faith today. I'm Shaylin Back. And I'm Carly Gaiman. We are your co-hosts.
1: And today, we are so excited to welcome Melissa Wei-Ting Way as our guest.
2: Melissa, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's really fun to be here.
1: Thank you. We feel so fortunate to have Melissa joining us today. And this is an episode Shaylin and I have anticipated for more than a year. So we're excited mm-hmm. to have you. To briefly introduce our guest, Melissa received her PhD in East Asian languages and civilizations from Harvard University and served as a senior lecturer in Chinese studies at the University of Auckland. Melissa was born in California, is a fourth-generation Chinese-Japanese-American, and most of her adult life has been spent outside the United States. She and her husband have four children, and Melissa is a beautiful writer. And we are so grateful to have her in the studio today to talk about her work on the church's Global Histories Project, something she's been working on as a historian.
0: And longtime listeners of the podcast will remember that we published an episode last year with Melissa's colleague, Ryan Saltzgiver, and he gave an introduction to the Global Histories Project and shared just a few of the personal narratives of women around the world who accepted the gospel of. Jesus Christ. And to this day, this is one of our favorite episodes, Mm -hmm. and we'll make sure to link to it in our show notes. And there are so, so many more stories to share, which is why we invited Melissa here today to continue that conversation. So we really hope our listeners will enjoy it. So to jump right in, Melissa, for those who are not familiar with the Global Histories Project, will you just give a brief summary of this effort?
2: Yeah, you can find the Global Histories in the Gospel Library app or on the church's website in the Gospel Library, and there's a section called Restoration in Church History. And then in that section, you'll see a little thumbnail which says Global Histories. So the project of the Global Histories is to tell the story of the Latter-day Saints wherever we are. So often people think church history means the history of all these counties in the Midwest in America in the 19th century and actually church history you know unfolds everywhere and given the fact that the majority of our membership is outside the United States most of our history is outside the United States so we're trying to rectify that gap
0: mm-hmm. and between what is available and what is in terms of our history. Mm -hmm. And it's just so faith-promoting to read these stories and listen to these stories. And it's not necessarily prominent leaders of the church, and it's not necessarily people who joined the church in the very beginning, but it's so beautiful that it's all around the world, members from almost every country we could even think of. And it's just so neat to be able to gather these stories and have them in one place and accessible to the general membership.
2: Yeah, it's really fun. Sometimes we feel like we're kind of wading through a lot of weeds trying to find the really good materials. It's not that Latter-day saints haven't been making history and right? doing things and um, taking the church to new places in the in Papua New Guinea and you know the Democratic Republic of the Congo and South Africa and South Korea. It's just that so often the people who were there keeping church histories were missionaries uh, from North America. Mm-hmm. We're writing in English to their mission administrators about basically transfers, long (laughs) lists of, you know, this missionary came, this missionary left, this missionary came, this missionary left. But what we're doing is we kind of dig through these records is like, but what were the local people doing? What were they doing? What were they eating at their church activities? Where were they going? What was their favorite kind of thing to do? And that's what we're kind of digging for. Those unique stories that reflect the local
1: people and the local culture. Right. One thing I love about the global histories is they're actually really short. Mm -hmm. Like you could jump in and get just kind of a quick summary. So that's something for our listeners to know. This is not like a novel that you have to read about a single country. (laughs) It's a really succinct,
2: punchy story or narrative. Ryan Saltzgiver actually read something recently that said that, you know, Jesus told all these different parables. And the longest one is the parable of the prodigal son. And that one's about 500 words. And our global histories are 500 words or less.
0: That is so neat. It does make him really accessible and you kind of get sucked in too, which is fun.
1: And I also like it isn't just from missionaries' perspectives and the gospel wasn't spread just through missionaries, but even through migration. And we talked about this on our last episode as people move from Europe to South America or Africa, and then they organically, the church spread from them and their efforts. So those were a couple of things. But we did want to ask too, Melissa, how you became involved in this project and how it has personally impacted you and your faith and how you feel about the global church.
2: Well, this is kind of personal, but I came to leave my beloved job at the University of Auckland and be here because I got really sick and I came to Utah for life-saving cancer treatments. Mm-hmm. Wow. I never saw myself being in the church history department. Mm-hmm. I have colleagues in the church history department you know, who are my colleagues in the field, mm-hmm. and I'd always admired them but I just never thought that I'd be here. But Mm -hmm. here I am. And it's just fantastic to be here at this moment when we're still working on the global histories. So much of my academic work has been focused on global Christianity. Mm -hmm. So it's super to be able to look at this question from a kind of internal vantage point. Awesome. Wonderful. Thank you.
0: So, Melissa, for many reasons, there's A deficit of women's stories in the church. And you and Ryan Saltzgiver have both emphasized your very intentional effort as a team to gather and share the stories of women through the Global Histories Project. Can you describe this effort to put women back into the history and why this is so important?
2: Yeah. So I guess the way to kind of illustrate this point is to give the listeners a little pop quiz, which is name five women from church history. For example, I raised this question to my husband, Mm -hmm. and he couldn't do it.
1: Mm -hmm. And it kind of breaks your heart. Like, (laughs) I was watching some of my cousins who were teenagers and younger and talking about my work on the podcast, and I mentioned something about Emmeline Wells, who is, like, a rock star in women's history in the church. And they're like, who's Emmeline Wells, you
2: know? And it's just a little sad. Just the fact that women's names are not ready to mind— makes us super conscious of naming women in the global histories. And so uh, we have actually a spreadsheet where we track things like how many women are named, in how many stories, in which of these stories does a woman take an action, in which of these stories is a woman a protagonist or maybe a co-protagonist with a spouse, Mm -hmm. and what percentage of the stories overall have women in them or have, have female protagonists. And so we track these things, and we notice that the first time we did a count, There were some pretty low numbers. After the first 40 places had been written up, from Argentina to Wales, about 70% of the stories had at least one woman who appeared and was mentioned by name. 44% of the stories depicted women actually taking an action. And 14% of the stories listed the woman as a point-of-view protagonist. And altogether, women were 26% of the named individuals. And that includes chronologies. So not just the stories, but like the long Even the existence of, of yeah histories of events. So mm-hmm. we have stories of faith and we have chronologies. Mm-hmm. So those are the numbers. And then in the most recent batch, we looked at this and a woman was named in 87% of the stories. Mm. Um, women were taking action in 57% of the stories. So now at least we're like above half, which mm-hmm, right. is good. And a woman was a point of view protagonist in 36% of the stories. And overall, including all the chronologies, women were a 28% of named individuals. So we have kind of slowly creeping up. <laughs> yes, yes. Right. So there's like, I guess, two lessons here. So one is that if you actually count then you can see where, where you thought you were doing a great job, you're maybe not doing as great of a job as you thought you were.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: counting can just make you like, literally accountable. Mm-hmm. And makes you and <laughs> Makes it so that you can actually see and track your progress. And then the second thing is that even though we're working so hard, it barely changes the percentage. So we just have to keep on working
0: hard. Like everyone has to work hard and we have to keep mm-hmm. on doing it for a long time. But mm-hmm. it's amazing because since you have that focus and that perspective, you are finding things. And it is making a difference. Right.
2: Well, so just to name an example, just recently I was working on the history of the church in the Cook Islands. And I saw this one chronology entry from October 6, 1946. It says the first branch in the Cook Islands was organized with Harry Strickland as first counselor and Manu Cummings as second counselor. Primary and Relief Society leaders were also called. And I was like... Well,
1: obviously they existed. They had names. Who are those
2: women? Give us their names. (laughs) And so that first source was called a brief summary of missionary work in the Cook Islands. Whichever person had summarized this missionary work had, had thought it was important to name the men, but didn't think it was important to name the women. So I went back into some other sets of records, which were kind of more primary, I guess, the week-to-week accounts of who said the opening prayer mm-hmm. and like what, what the topic agendas. was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there I saw that two women were named. Apina Strickland was named as the Relief Society president, and Napoko Dean was named as the primary president. And so I was able to put them back into the history, where they were the whole time, but just, yes. just to, to name them.
1: And that's why I think is so interesting, and you've said this before, it's not that women weren't there making incredible contributions and important contributions, that their names just weren't always included. So grateful for this effort, again, like you said, to find their names, put them back in, and be able to share their stories.
2: Well, let's just think about the significance of names in Latter-day Saint culture. You can't do temple work for someone if you don't have a name, right? Yeah. Names have a sacred significance, and so it's so important not to leave them out and to bring them in. Mm -hmm. I really love that.
1: Melissa, something that I wanted to ask you about, like I said, you're a beautiful writer. You've written several books. You know, your writings are in various places online. And you've often written about faith crises, about helping people or your perspective on how we can work through those challenges in our faith. And we wanted to ask how studying our global history can help us when we struggle, sometimes
2: very deeply with issues of faith or with challenges with our faith. That's a great question. And I can definitely say that studying global history has helped me with my faith. When you look at the histories of other Latter-day Saint women, you see that they have different stories. They have different intersections with what appeals to them about the church. They're just doing things in a different way. And the issues that they see are not completely different because we're all human, but people have really different experiences. So let me just share, for example, a really cool woman. Um, She's in the global histories. Mm -hmm. Her name is Isoa Iqponwen, and she is recently retired as the Supreme Court Chief Justice of Edo State in Nigeria. She might be like the highest ranking judicial woman uh, that we have. Wow. Mm -hmm. The, The Chief Justice of a state in Nigeria. Christine Durham, I guess, was chief justice in Utah, so maybe like she and Issei are like on the same level. Mm -hmm. Amazing, smart. She actually is a convert, and she discovered the church when she was serving already as a magistrate in Edo State. Her office was near her mother's home, and during one visit to her mother's home, she saw some of her nieces and nephews reading a book to her mother. And her mother was illiterate. Mm -hmm. And she saw the book and she's like, oh, it's the Book of Mormon. That is a bad book. (laughs) Throw it out. (laughs) (laughs) And she confronted her brother who had brought it home. And he's like, no, this is a good book and the church is good. But she was like unconvinced. But then later on, uh, Issei found her mother writing in this big book. And she asked her mother about it, and she explained that the church that had given them the Book of Mormon also did literacy courses, and she was learning to read. Uh, She was learning to read the scriptures. She was writing letters to a daughter who had emigrated. And Esau said, I saw my mother so happy. And she started to kind of reconsider her assumptions about the church, and she said, there must be something there.
0: Mm -hmm. So
2: then the next Sunday, she attended the local ward, and she was struck by the peace she felt. She didn't, yeah, you know, join the church immediately for it's over some time. a year. Mm-hmm. Um, she and her colleague like, used their legal training to kind of interrogate <laughs> Tear the, apart the claims. claims. Mm-hmm. But eventually, she kept on going, and she prayed about the things she was being taught. And she had this dream that confirmed to her the truthfulness of the gospel. And she and her daughter were baptized when she was sworn in as a chief justice of Edo State. After the swearing-in ceremony, the reporters asked her about her attitude toward her work, and she quoted King Benjamin from the Book of Mormon. She said, mm-hmm. when you're in the service of your fellow beings, you're only in the service of your God. So completely, yes. Latter-day Saint, you know, her, her cre- credentials are impeccable. But I'm familiar with some of her writings, and in her writings, I think that she and I would have pretty different approaches to this issue of gender, mm-hmm. gender norms, you know, the language we use. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I would say that she's a lot more conservative than me mm-hmm. on the spectrum of academic... North American feminist discourse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But like who is more feminist? (laughs) Who is like Uh awesomer um in terms of lifting women and just representing in the most cool way? Like clearly her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this just like stories like those of Justice Ig just make me realize, just just give me a little more perspective. Sure. That I'm not the only woman in the world. Mm -hmm. And my expectations and and, and even the expectations of people who are a lot like me, you know, Mm -hmm. who I talk with a lot online. You know, we are a small corner of the daughters of God.
0: That's such an amazing and important perspective. I've never thought about a lot of the things that you're sharing, and I just think that's such a neat way to tie this into the global histories and Mm -hmm. just have that perspective reading about these incredible women and the Mm -hmm. things that they're doing, yeah, in all of their spheres. And that we don't have the
1: authoritative perspective or experience or the only perspective it's so humbling to be reminded of that.
0: <laughs> Thank you for sharing all of those thoughts. I do think that provides, again, an important context for these stories. And in previous conversations, you have shared with us some stories of really remarkable women of faith that you've come to know through this project. And we kind of just want to turn the mic over to you, Melissa, and ask you to share a few more of these women with our listeners.
2: Cool. Sometimes you get these stories that point towards this kind of universal thread, towards yes. this, this idea that, like, we're all children of God, and there's something here for people. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in Mongolia in 1994, uh, Bachi Meg was grappling with these questions about the meaning of life. Her beloved uncle had died, mm-hmm. her favorite uncle, and she was looking for meaning. So she asked one of her cousin's friends who went to some kind of American church if she could go with her, and she said that as soon as she stepped into the meeting, she felt this peaceful feeling. I'll quote her. She said, I remember this feeling from when I was five years old in the woods lying down. I felt like I belonged there the moment I walked in. They sang the hymns, and I liked the hymns. The whole process just felt like I had to be there. Hmm. So cultures do separate us. They divide us. They they change the kinds of expectations that we have. And yet in Mongolia in 1994, Bati Meg walked into this building and had this feeling that she recognized mm-hmm. from when she was five mm-hmm. in yeah, the woods. feeling of peace, yeah.
1: And I love that hymns are so often universally, and, and hymns can be different in different parts of the world, but some hymns we share. And I love that that's often something that brings people in.
2: Right. So then Bachimeg had a friend named Soyoma, and they had been exchange students in Russia together. Mm-hmm. And so one day, Soyoma asked Bachimeg why she stopped drinking tea. And Bachimeg brought a church, and then Soyoma eventually joined the church, and they would accompany the missionaries and translate for them. And the Book of Mormon was only available in Russian. So because they had this Russian language yeah. expertise, they were mm-hmm. able to very fluently translate for the missionaries. So, so at a certain point, they, like, knew these discussions by memory. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, be, so, like, the missionaries would get to a certain point. They'd say, they'd say, hey, you forgot the part about blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and the missionaries would oh, yeah, sorry. And they'd, like, go back. But they just thought it was kind of like a dream, you know, like it's so expensive to go overseas. But then one day after Bachimek had gone to school in St. Petersburg, Russia, and been part of that local Latter-day Saint congregation, she came Mm -hmm. back from her study again. And she said, do you know that we can serve missions? And so then Bachimek and Soyoma both turned in their papers. So Bachimek came to Temple Square and Soyoma served in Utah Provo Mission. And they were the first two missionaries from Mongolia. That is so neat. So that's one story. Another story that kind of gives us another angle on this is the story of Plaxides Nyasondo Nyanamo in We're Zimbabwe. We're glad you're the one saying these names yes. and not us. <laughs> and so the context in which he tells this story is against the backdrop of this huge kind of economic crisis in Zimbabwe between 2007 and 2009. So during this period, there was, there was drought, there was record setting inflation. One church member said you could go with a wheelbarrow full of money and buy a box of matches. Wow. So, it's so scary. Right. That is terrifying. Um, there was a cholera outbreak. And there was all this social instability. And at this time, members of the branch would kind of pull together. Those who had food items would bring them to church. The Relief Society members would visit the families and you know distribute this assistance. Sometimes in some places, the district leaders reported that when they'd go to visit member families, they would you know, bring these food. Sometimes they'd arrive to find the children with just a pot of boiling water for a meal. And the mother would have spent their last money on bus fare to go to a city to ask some relative for money or something like that or ask them for food. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is that Plaxides tells a story against the context of you could actually not have enough food and you could actually, people, you know, people were starving. Um, there was massive food insecurity. And so it was a real thing in recent memory to be in big trouble because mm-hmm. of an economic situation. So there's an oral history interview given by Plaxides where she talks about how in 2012, just three years, I guess, after the end of this crisis, she lost her job the supermarket chain she worked for suddenly closed down. And she had a son in boarding school, so they had to pay her fees. Um, they were still renting. And she didn't have any other options, income. Mm-hmm. right? So she said, I didn't have money to take care of my family. I was affected temporally and spiritually. She says, you cannot even concentrate, so you die spiritually bit by bit. But she decided she would start a business cooking food. So she sold her clothes, and she used $20 to buy ground corn, meat, vegetables, tomatoes, and an onion. She cooked these in four big pots with the assistance of her sister and niece. And she got $40, so 100% profit.
0: Mm-hmm. So then
2: she took that $40 again, and she bought new stuff. And you know, kind of kept going. Kept going, yeah. And She said, I would pray unto the Lord that he would guide me. Now in 2014, so after she'd been in business for two years, she joined a group called Starting and Growing My Business. It's like a class that you can take mm-hmm. with a self-reliance program. Mm-hmm. In her oral history, she talks about learning to separate business funds from family money, learning to keep records so that she knew whether she was making a profit. And her business continued to grow. At a certain point, she had to hire several employees. Another point, she got this catering contract for a local church's three-day conference with 600 people in attendance. And so she said, I'll quote her here. Uh, She's talking about the self-reliance classes. She says, I put so many things into practice. I do record if there are any shrinkages. I do record everything that I do, paychecks, receipts. Now I'm able to pay my tithing. And she says, I'll just quote her some more because she's so awesome. She says, God would never put us in a situation he knows we won't pass through. Even in business, it won't go smoothly, sometimes the ups and downs. But we have to have faith in Jesus Christ that he will pull us through. So again, like this incredibly inspiring story of someone who staring into the abyss mm-hmm. of not having a job in, in a place where that can have huge, huge catastrophic consequences. She dug in,
1: persevered, and, uh, yeah.
2: persevered and she sought extra learning. Uh, she tapped into resources that were available in church. And now she has this massive business. Thriving, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And it's amazing to me because even though we all have such different cultures and different paradigms based on our experiences, the principles of the gospel are universal. So when we have faith in Jesus Christ, that's universal. She's paying her tithing and this principle of receiving blessings from paying our tithing based on our willingness to be obedient, like those things are universal. And so I just think this story is so beautiful of her Mm -hmm. success that she was able to have using these resources.
2: Yeah, um, some stories are just like um, are not necessarily like you know, ta da, moral to the story, stories. Stories, right. um, so they're just like gripping stories. So here's mm-hmm. another gripping story. Um, this is um, Venerada Baquedano ah, I'm not really good at Spanish. Her name is Venerada Bacquedano de Lagos in Honduras, and she gave birth to her tenth child. Wow. (laughs) That in and of
1: itself is a (laughs) great story. (laughs) a
2: lot. (laughs) (laughs) It was a baby boy, and she actually named him Miller in honor of a missionary who served in their ward in Choluteca. So seven days after she gave birth to this new baby, Hurricane Mitch had struck Honduras, and the waters of the nearby Choluteca River were rising. And on Wednesday, the rain grew stronger, the river rose higher than they'd ever seen it before. So her husband, Jose, he was also the local bishop took their family to the nearby meeting house. And in the middle of the night, torrential rain fell. And so Jose like, jumped up, ran out into the rain to the rest of the members of the ward, Gathered ran around them all outside, up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and brought them into the meeting house. So by 1 a.m., you've got 220 people huddled together in the meeting house. And Ventura has this little tiny baby, tiny baby, scared kids. They're all cooped up with their belongings. Um, they had no food, you know, because they were like hemmed in by the floodwaters. So, and so they just began to pray, and that eventually the waters finally receded. But when the storm abated, they saw their entire neighborhood was just like a field of mud. Uh, wow. The new bridge had been washed away. The roads, the melon fields, the shrimp ponds, the cars had been washed away. Everything was washed away. And so she was there with her new baby and all of her kids and her husband and the neighbors in the middle of this massive devastation and just having to start all over again. Mm-hmm. And when you think about like what it means to be part of a global church and a global brotherhood and sisterhood, These stories are our stories, Mm -hmm, and these mm -hmm. things that have happened to members of the church have happened to us. President Hinckley came and spoke to these members within a couple of weeks after this hurricane. He said, as long as the church has resources, we will not let you go hungry or without clothing or without shelter. You are our brothers and sisters. You are as precious to us as are the members of the church in Salt Lake City. When you suffer, we suffer. When you are putting great stress, we feel that same stress. And that's what you get when you read the global histories. Mm-hmm. You get this sense of the experiences and also really unifying. the unifying mm-hmm. and the perspectives and the trials of different Latter day Saints. And you get this sense of, like, in some ways, we're not as well off as we thought we were. All of the problems, the hunger, the natural disasters, the political struggles, all of those things you know, that happen in the world happen to us. Happen to us, yeah. Because mm-hmm. the Latter day Saints are everywhere.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Such an
1: interesting perspective. I love the story about Debbie Pierce in Jamaica, and I love the sister in Thailand.
2: So the sister in Thailand story, this is a very interesting person. Her name is Sri Laksana Suntarahut, and she was really well-educated. She had lived with the Queen of Thailand, and she had received this really awesome education in English and Thai. So a super well-educated person, and she became the kind of spearheading member of the translation committee on the Book of Mormon. So she was translating the Book of Mormon into Thai. One night she—well, I'm just going to read you the story. So one night, Sri Laksana lay on the floor to rest from translating. An evil power entered the room, immobilized her, and flipped her onto her stomach. An immense weight was placed on her lower back. She screamed in pain and, unable to get up, had to lie on the floor until help arrived in the morning. The resulting back pain seriously interfered with the translating process until Sri Laksana received a blessing from Bruce R. McConkie of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. In a few days, she had enough relief that she could return to translating the Book of Mormon. However, she suffered with back pain for the rest of her life. Then a year later, she experienced this life-threatening complication from an operation, and the doctor sent her home. And the story says the pain was so terrible she couldn't sleep. She couldn't close her eyes or even speak. She thought she soon might die. Then she recounted, I'll quote her, the door of my bedroom opened, and three tall men in white robes entered my room and came and stood by my bed. Their heads were also covered in white. They laid their hands on my head. One of them called me my name and said in English, We, the elders of Israel, as he began to pronounce a blessing. And that's the end of her quote. She says that she felt like she were shocked with electricity and overcome with happiness. And when she awoke from this dream, she found she could speak again. And three days later, she resumed translating the Book of Mormon. Wow. So this is an interesting story in so many ways. Really interesting. Like, number one, when God fixes people, why doesn't God fix them all the way? (laughs) She has back pain for the rest of her life. And the second point, like, amazing that God fixes people so they can keep on translating.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And another interesting thing, the, the linguistic thing going on, she's speaking Thai, but then like, she, like in her dream i don't know is she like because she's like working with english so much you know like when you learn foreign languages you dream in the foreign languages so she hears this foreign language in her dream and then another kind of interesting story from sri laksana is that she was having this really hard time translating the word priesthood because it's like a christian it's concept, a christian concept. Mm-hmm. it doesn't mm-hmm. exist in, in the same way in thai so she was praying to find a way to represent this concept in thai And she was thinking, you know, help me, help me to solve this word. And then she recounts, I'll I'll just quote her. She says, I looked at the ceiling in my room and I saw a hand writing Thai letters. She knew immediately that was the word for priesthood. But this word doesn't exist in any Thai dictionary. And and what I like about this story is that, you know, so often like our short faith-promoting stories are super simple and like there's only one way to read them. But her story is really complex. And I'm sure if I were competent in Thai culture and language, there would be other kind of elements to her story that would also be complex that would have a kind of an additional richness.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and but, that you connect to differently.
2: But even as it is, it has this richness. And in it, I think when you're just like, like we'll say like a pioneer crossing the plains of Midwestern American story. Mm-hmm. Those can be kind of formulaic because they're so familiar and we all know the way that they're supposed to turn out. Mm-hmm. right? But when you read miracle stories like this one or stories of faith from Latter-day Saints in different parts of the world, different cultures, different assumptions, different circumstances, they feel really real to me because they're so clearly rooted in lots of things that are real. And I think that, again, helps us to expand our understanding of how God works, what it means to be a child of God,
0: the meaning of prayer, all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And when it's your story in your home with your talents and skills and things like that. I just think of this woman translating the Book of Mormon. And it's just like Heavenly Father really used her. Everything that about her um, to move the gospel forward, and it's mm-hmm. it's so neat.
1: What I liked about this story is I think there are elements of it that are, like, uncomfortable, you know, like an evil spirit, you know, like these parts that it's like, oh, that's not how we tell. Like, that's not a story I would want to share in sacrament meeting, but it's like, this is our history. This is how she experienced her faith and her participation in this process.
2: Right, yeah. and I like this point that you raised about, like, being in your own home and your own language, So it's really important to us that these histories uh, can be read by people in their own languages. So these are all translated into multiple languages. That's an important thing to point out. Thank Mm -hmm. you. And then the, the great thing about these being published on the web is that sometimes people will contact us from these countries and they'll say, yeah, how could you have said this? Blah, blah, blah. This is totally wrong. And we're not trying to make mistakes, but we're so grateful when people point that out to us. It's like a work in progress. It's like a springboard for expanded work on global history that's in the works. Awesome. Let me share one more story. So Ryan Saltsky, my colleague, really likes this story about Kim Pill. So Kim Pil ran a small souvenir shop in South Korea. And Latter-day Saint Airman saw that they were hungry and they hadn't eaten for a while. So he came back and gave them hamburgers. And then he invited them to church. And shortly thereafter, her daughter, Dopil's daughter, was baptized. And after being baptized, her daughter gave her mother a Japanese copy of the Book of Mormon. So in South Korea, because they had been colonized by the Japanese, they could read Japanese. Though eventually, of course, the Book of Mormon was available in Korean, which Mm -hmm. was more ideal and celebrated by the Korean Latter-day Saints. The, the thing that impresses Ryan so much, which, which I think is also very impressive, is that she read the Book of Mormon uh, very carefully. When I think about how I first read the Book of Mormon, I think I read, you know, I, and Nephi, Haven't Been Born of Goodly Parents. I read that like 17 times, and then I never got past the Isaiah chapters in 2 Nephi. But what she does, when she, she reads the whole thing really carefully, she creates this 12-foot long scroll where she traces the genealogy and the line of authority of the people and the prophets mentioned in the Book of Mormon, she creates this chronology of the different migrations, you know, like you know, the other Jaredites oh, wow. and all the people who go in and out. Uh, and she outlines the key doctrines of the Book of Mormon. And so it's just, she's like really seriously. She maps it all out. <laughs> studying it like the way that you, if you're if you writing a theological book or something. Yes. And she says, one particular day as I was studying asking God for knowledge of the truth, I felt his divine spirit and it convinced me that I should join the church. And so then she was baptized, and the members of the local Sunday school <laughs> immediately recognized that she was an expert on the Book of Mormon. <laughs> and What a valuable asset <laughs> to their new branch. <laughs> yes. And so she gave super good lessons, in-depth lessons, on the Book of Mormon as the first Relief Society president in Korea. That's amazing. Yeah, it's just like—I just love stories that show how, you know, Latter-day Saint women are smart, they're thoughtful— their talents are recognized, Mm -hmm. and uh, their expertise is valuable, and they contribute so much. And so, you know, how important is it to, like, actually keep them, put them back into our history? Yes. Well, and again,
1: I think when we think of Korea, it's like, oh, there was such a great missionary effort. You know, we sent over young missionaries, and that's how the church in Korea is what it is today. And we do often forget about, like, what kind of influence would this woman have had? And again, it was, I think, interacting with military that were there in the area that she was introduced to the church. But then for her to be a leader and, I don't know, a mother maybe, and her influence is really incalculable.
2: Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and we can also think about the role that the missionaries play in a local ward. I mean, think about the role the missionaries play in your ward. So what makes a ward a ward? Has nothing to do with missionaries. It has everything to do with the local saints. This is not to diss missionaries. I've been a missionary in Taiwan.
0: They just have a different role.
2: But like when we actually, yeah, when we tell church history, so often we have been stuck with just like the file folder label on the outside of the file and not the contents of the file itself. Yes. And again. It's not because anyone's trying to disrespect local Latter-day Saints, but it's just that these records and their stories haven't been the same kind of priority for us as Mm -hmm. they are right now. Well, and it's not negating
1: any perspectives. It's just bringing them all together. It's like we need all of these perspectives to tell the story of Latter-day Saints.
2: And and now when you have a really well mature and well-developed church— then the local saints start to develop their sense of history, too. Like you talk to people and you, you find that there are people that everyone knows about or stories that everyone's heard. Yes. Like In Taiwan, everyone knows the story about the member who came home to cook the missionaries a lunch and the fish that he had bought at the market was wrapped in the newspaper, had the ad for the land that eventually became the land that Taipei Temple was built on. So like everyone knows that story is what I'm saying. And so over time, as a church becomes more mature and as they have more resources to develop to kind of collecting the history and to preserving it, then that's what we get to. So it it reflects institutional maturity. It reflects opportunities. It reflects personnel, like who happens to be at a certain place at a certain time, who cares about recording a certain history. It's all those kinds of complex factors. But we're trying to systematically recover as much of this local history as we can. That's wonderful.
1: Melissa, is there anything more you'd like to share with women of the church or those listening to the podcast?
2: I think because of the work that lies before us in restoring natural proportions of women in the stories that we tell. I just like to encourage everyone, women or not a woman, to tell these stories. Uh, You can find them in At The Pulpit. You can find them in, you can look at the global histories, which now has more and more women in it. You can (laughs) listen to the whole podcast. You can share this podcast. Just do whatever you can to circulate these stories and make them part of our collective consciousness. because. If we write these histories, but nobody reads them and nobody tells them again, then it's like they don't exist either.
1: Well, and the goal being that in 10 years from now or or whenever from now, when you ask that question again, can you name five women from history, right. you know, from the history of the church, yeah. we'll easily be able to pull up names and they won't just be pioneer woman from North America, but they'll be, oh, and I love this story from this woman in Thailand or this woman from Mongolia.
2: Right. Mm -hmm. Like Kim Do-Pil, 12-foot scroll, (laughs) (laughs) Supreme Court Justice, Edo State, Nigeria. Yeah. That'll be cool. We'll Mm -hmm. look forward to that.
0: Well, I just love the phrase that you used. You said you're working to restore these natural proportions through these stories that are told. And so I love our opportunity to then share them and retell them. So Mm -hmm. Melissa, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us today and to share all of the amazing work that you're doing. Thank you.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Thanks, Melissa. And to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Latter-day Saint Women podcast. And we have a big favor to ask. If you enjoyed this or other episodes, will you go now to your favorite podcast platform, click subscribe, and leave a rating or review? We would be so grateful. We also encourage you, as Melissa did, to share this episode with a friend or family member or someone who would benefit from this great conversation today with Melissa. You could mention it in conversation or send it in a quick text or social media message. And so you're aware the podcast is available just about anywhere that you get podcasts on the church's website the gospel library app saints channel mobile app apple podcast google podcast spotify and many other platforms so thank you so much for your support
0: and we love hearing from you. We were just talking earlier about how much we love to read the reviews, and we get so many. It makes many, our day. It makes our day. But we also get so many good ideas and such great feedback. So if there's a topic you'd like to hear addressed or a guest you'd like to hear from, just let us know. Feel free to contact us at podcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. Finally, we'd like to thank our wonderful editor, Kurt Dahl, and our producer, Matthew Mangum, and the many others who support this podcast. Until next week, I'm Shaylin Back. And I'm Carly Guyman. Thanks for listening.